Okay, sorry people. Now we have um, technology. Uh, I'd like to read a chunk from Romans 16, which I might have read an earlier week, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, you've forgotten because it was more than a week ago. And um, at least I think it was more than a week ago. Um, and um, it's, it's uh, significant for what we're thinking about in the first half this evening, insofar as it talks about um, the way in which God's word that was spoken in the Hebrew scriptures uh, illumines now and um, sets up hope now. So I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. So see what this says to you. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbour for the good purpose of building up the neighbour. For Christ did not please himself. But, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. How many Gentiles present? Hands up Gentiles please. Thank you very much. This is about us. As it is written, therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles and all the peoples. Praise him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. And here's Paul's prayer for you, the last verse I'm going to read. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything about that strike, anybody? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I need to know this for 
Okay. Anybody else need hope? Yeah, several people need hope. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, other things on offer here are joy. Anybody like joy? Anybody need joy? No. Yes. One, two, three. Okay. Uh, peace. Peace in believing. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because this believing lark seminary um, disturbs you, stops you in peace and believing, doesn't it? Paul, the great theologian, great critical theologian, who would cause you trouble. If you were standing here, then you'd be in trouble. Wow. But once you to have peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us with hope and joy and peace in believing. Any other of those uh, passages, of those bits, strike anybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm just wondering about our own theology of salvation. That if it seems that the Bible is saying that even before Jesus, God's intention is already the salvation of the Jew and the Gentile. Mm-hmm. And maybe salvation looks more complicated than how we like it. You mean if salvation is through Christ, how could that have been the, the case? How could that have been so? I mean, we, we, yeah, because we've always explained it, oh, it must be the Jews because they were the people of God. But if the scripture here says that God's intention, even before Jesus, mm. was salvation of the Gentiles mm-hmm. also, then mm-hmm. does that mean that what, what then did salvation look like for the Gentiles before Jesus? But I don't know if you want to get into that right now. Not this moment, yeah. but, I, uh, but we'll talk about we'll come back to it later. Um, so um, if I forget remind me (laughs) Um, yeah come in just you (laughs) well that's um, oh Hmm. never put the word just before you unless you're talking about being just by faith um Here's uh, a characteristic of God uh, that runs through um, the whole Bible story. Uh, and so that's part of the basis upon which Paul is able to um, talk about the uh, position of the Romans uh, in light of the kind of things that the Hebrew Scriptures said, um, that the, the faithful one is unchanging. Faithful one, so unchanging... Ageless one, you're my rock of peace. Lord of all, I depend on you. And I call out to you again and again. I call out to you again and again. You are my rock. In times of trouble, you lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. Let's sing it again and sing we, us, our. 
faithful one, so unchanging. Ageless one, you're our rock of peace. Lord of all, we depend on you, and we call out to you again and again. We call out to you again and again. You are our rock in times of trouble. You lift us up when we fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. Our hope is in you alone. Gracious God, we come to you as people who need you to be our faithfulness and our joy and our peace and our hope. And we ask that your Holy Spirit may indeed come to fill us so that we may know you as the faithful God who gives us hope and joy and peace in believing. And may our study of the scriptures even this evening contribute towards that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, I think uh, I'll say something about the paper, um, although I don't know what I'm going to say about it because I've said everything that I could think of to say in the folder, in the syllabus. So um, I'll kind of say that again and you can ask me things that you want to ask. Um, this is a paper you're supposed to turn in by next Monday. Um, Somebody last year complained that I set as the uh, deadline, Memorial Day, because they obviously, well, I don't know why they thought that I would reject the paper if it was turned in a day early. Um, I don't reject papers if they're turned in a day early, so if you want to have a free Memorial Day, which I think is a good idea, feel free to turn it in early. Um, and... Uh, Yes, I'll then um, grade them in the order in which I receive them, so the sooner you turn it in, the sooner you get it back. Um, the, the paper that you're doing, this first paper that you're doing, is a kind of extended version of one of those studies uh, of topics that we did earlier in the quarter. Um, so you're going to do the same kind of work in picking out one of those topics like anger um, that's, uh, that's in the list at the beginning of the syllabus, um, and doing the work on Scripture to find out uh, the kind of thing that Scripture's got to say on whatever topic you choose. Uh, and then try to write a paper which doesn't just list all the, all the texts, um, and doesn't have to list them all when there's a lot of, uh, when there's a lot of them, but tries to get um, a perspective on the issue as a whole, so that you end up with a paper that says, well, it seems to me that, anger, that, that Scripture says the following five key things about anger. Um, or that it's got, or, or sometimes it's... Um, There'll be two sides of a coin that need to be discussed. So you might say, well, there are these three things that, that I need to talk about, and there are two sides to each of these statements about anger. 
so that um, you're describing what Scripture as a whole has got to say about the topic um, and getting some perspective on the scriptural teaching as a whole. Um, and, and, of course, bear in mind uh, the, the difference between the way we think about whatever the topic is and what you discover in the scriptures. So there will be something to be said for starting off by writing down more or less off the top of your head, well, what this top, when I think about the top, this topic, I think about the following things. Um, and then when you've done the scriptural study, uh, see whether that um, makes you think different things. Makes you make, whether what the scriptures have got to say um, pushes our thinking in a different direction. By all means, um, use things like Bible dictionaries. But as I always say, don't start there. Uh, and um, rather, do some work on your own. But then use something like a Bible dictionary uh, in order to check out what the um, insights that you've re- reached. So that you, uh, in case you find that some of your insights are actually outsights, I've just invented that word. That would be a good word, wouldn't it, really? Um, that, that maybe it'll say something and you'll see that your perspective was wrong, that you've misread the scriptures. Um, uh, or, or maybe uh, it will uh, raise extra issues that you hadn't thought about. Um, and so you don't have to um, look at something like a Bible dictionary, look at any other resources, but if you want to, by all means do. Um, by all means think about how this will affect the way you think about um, uh, being a therapist. Um, if you want to do a topic other than the the ones that I mentioned at the beginning of the syllabus, then send me an email and say, this is what I want to do. Um, and I'll probably say yes. Um, unless, but, but my advice would be, uh, these have worked um, when, when you've been doing a topic which is both something significant for us and something that the scriptures have got um, uh, a reasonable amount to, um, to talk about, um, of which, for instance, anger is obviously a topic, is, is obviously an example. Um, and the other ones on here, uh, election, fear, suffering, worship, prayer, penitence, speech, those are, those are all topics that are significant for us and that scripture has got a fair amount to say about. Uh, if you choose a topic that's really important for us, um, like depression then you may have a problem because you get into complications about whether what it means by depression over against what, we, what you mean, what that big book um, defines depression as and so on. Um, but if you've got an idea of a topic you'd like to do that isn't in my list, uh, email me and we can talk about it. Um, what, uh, what do you mean by election? <laughs> uh, I mean um, the, uh, the notion that God uh, chooses the people of God and or chooses individuals um, and uh, saves them and uses them. Will that do? But, I mean, if you want to write a paper on what the Bible's got to say about presidential elections, then um, <laughs> you'll probably not do very well. But <laughs> any, any, any other questions about the paper? If we want to go with one of your topics, but just had some questions about general questions for further, you know, what we might do with it. Can we mm-hmm. ask you those? You know, you yeah, sure. Um, it's actually um, calling, call me rather than email me. I don't at all mind you calling, and it's easier usually to talk than, than to try and write, write a complicated email about something. So my uh, phone number's in the, in the uh, syllabus. Give me a call about it. Oh, that reminds me. 
I am in the midst. I'm, I've nearly completed moving, moving offices um, from across the other side of the mall to where I was to down underneath here. So if by any chance you should be looking for my office, um, you need to look on the main corridor on the second floor of this building now, uh, not across the way where I used to be. But the, f the phone numbers and emails, all that's still the same. Uh, who wanted me to talk about the paper? Will that do? Uh, anybody else want to ask anything? Um, okay. And then the... Well, let's, let's do, deal with the second paper while we're at it. Um, you'll see that for the second paper I've given you uh, two alternatives. One is that, you, that for you to write... Um, for you to reflect on and write what you now think about the question of the authority of the Bible, um, which I suggest you do by uh, reading three online resources and letting that be a basis for you making your own statement. You don't have to review these guys or say what they say. That's not the idea. Uh, the idea is for, to give you something to think about. What the paper needs to do is to formulate what you now think about the authority of Scripture in light of what we've done in class this quarter, in light of other things that you've done in class, and in light of what those guys who all have slightly different views. That's why I've given you the three um, things to, to read. Uh, you've got something that's fairly conser that's conservative evangelical and something that's a bit more uh, open-minded kind of evangelical and something that's a bit liberal. Um, and so you can have a look at those and that may help you to articulate your, your own view. So that's one possibility. The other option I've given you here is to write something on the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and to do something on Romans, which is kind of analogous with the thing that, that um, with this kind of study of Matthew you've been doing and that we're going to do some more of today. Uh, somebody on their posting said, well, is Matthew typical? Uh, well, this is your way to find out. Go and read Romans and see how, what, what, how, how Paul uses the Old Testament in Romans and, compare you, and, at least in the back of your head, compare and contrast that with the way that, um, the way that Matthew does it. Um, so those are the two options. Again, if you want to do something different, uh, you can uh, ask me. But the, that second paper needs to be something in the same kind of ballpark as those questions that I've said. That is, something in which you stand back and think about a big question, one of the big questions, um, like questions about authority or inspiration or the relationship of Old Testament and New Testament. Um, when you turn in the papers, uh, put your name in the uh, file name. Don't call it final paper because that's what everybody's are. Um, uh, and, when I, and when I grade it, I send it back to you uh, using the, the comment facility in Word and it tells you in the uh, syllabus uh, how you can see those comments. So if you get the paper back and you think there are no comments in it, it's not because there aren't any comments in it. It's because you haven't checked the markup uh, box or something like that in the view, uh, in the, um, in the view tab. Okay? Right, Matthew. Uh, I'm on page 50 where it says uh, the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament how Matthew 1-5 sees the Old Testament. 
Uh, and uh, what I'm going to do is, you'll see I've got um, half a dozen headings there. I'm going to work down those, but I'll say more about number two. The Old Testament declares the promises that Jesus, that Jesus is fulfills. That doesn't, that's, no Eng- that's no kind of English, is it? Well, because I'm a foreigner, I don't speak the language. Um, um, I'll spend more time on that because I'll actually look at the, at the uh, passages um, that, that you've looked at and make some, com- make some comment on that. Um, and then deal with the other four uh, kind of headings. And I will pick up some of the uh, questions in the postings on the way through when I get to number two, but then if we've got some more time at the end, I'll pick up some more then. So here are six ways uh, in which Matthew uh, looks at the uh, Old Testament, uses the Old Testament in connection with Jesus. And if you do that Romans... um, paper as your second paper, then I'm saying kind of produce a similar list of ways that Paul uh, uses the Old Testament in Romans, um, which won't be the same as those six, but will kind of overlap with those six. uh, And you you may find some of those categories work for Paul in Romans, but that Paul also got some other categories. Um, First then, uh, where Matthew begins but you probably never bother to read it because it's so amazingly boring. Isn't it strange that the New Testament should start in such boring fashion, really, um, with a list of the names uh, of Jesus that constitute Jesus' genealogy? Um, but uh, I uh, met a woman once who was converted through those 17 verses with which, chap- with which Matthew begins. Um, and she came to know Christ, to believe in Christ, through those 17 verses because she was Jewish. Uh, And that was what kind of clinched for her the fact that Jesus could be and was her Messiah. Uh, What those first 17 verses do is establish who Jesus is. I always think they're a bit like um, the the bit at the beginning of um, an episode of a series on TV where you get um, whatever the program is so far, what happened last week, or what happened through last... last, uh, Seasons, episodes, and it goes bomb, 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 in order to uh, remind you of where, uh, of what the background is to what you're going to look at today, uh, and that's what Matthew chapter one verses one to seventeen does for the rest of the gospel. It establishes, it reminds you who Jesus is. Uh, Matthew is writing to people who uh, are Jewish Christians, so they know the background. Uh, but what Matthew does is begin by reminding them of the, of the way that, that what they, uh, the way that their story as the Jewish people leads into the Jesus story. Um, who, where you come from establishes who you are. Um, it helps you to understand. If you, when you discover your own uh, background in terms of your ancestors and so on, it helps you to understand something of who you are. Matthew chapter 1 verses 17 establishes who Jesus is. Um, and in particular establishes that he has the key qualifications for being the Messiah. You can trace his genealogy back um, uh, through uh, the period after the exile, to the exile, uh, back to David, back to Abraham. One of the things that then uh, Matthew is doing is appealing to history, um, and that points up for us the significance of being interested in the real history Uh, that led up to Jesus. But another thing that Matthew is there doing is schematizing the history. 
Uh, at the very end it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Oh, that's clever, isn't it? That's neat. Except that if you go back and read the Old Testament story, you find that Matthew was cheated. Now, there aren't really, there weren't 14 generations. Matthew was neatified. That's two words I've invented tonight. Um, the story. Um, he, he has uh, shown how there's um, a plan of God being worked out uh, in the way that uh, he has uh, schematized the story that leads up to Jesus. Um, he's not fooling anybody. They, they, they know the story. But, but he's like a photographer or a portrait painter who, uh, particularly a painter, won't, won't make a point of not portraying the person that he's portraying exactly uh, the way they are, but will emphasise this feature or that in order for you to, to be able to understand some more. Paradoxically, the um, schematising, the nitifying uh, of, uh, of something helps to bring out the real truth about it. That's what um, Matthew assumes. Um, and so when we study the Old Testament, uh, we are interested in what actually happened, but we're all also interested in the way the story is told, um, as I suggested when we've looked at some of the Old Testament um, stories uh, this quarter. You're interested in the facts, but you're also interested in the way in which the facts are, t- are turned into a story. One final thing about um, in, under this first heading uh, the the story uh, the the, the, the schematising that Matthew does itself points you towards the fact that the story of Israel doesn't have to be read this way. Um, that is, it, it's, it's quite possible, as Jewish people do, uh, to read the story of Israel in a way that does not make it come to a climax in Jesus. Indeed, um, what Matthew is doing is writing the story backwards. That is, Jesus, Matthew knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, it's in light of that that Matthew gives you a summary of the Old Testament story in this neat form. The, the process of interpretation is not from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Or from, not from the Old Testament to Christ, but from Christ to the Old Testament. It's Jesus that helps you to understand uh, the Old Testament story. But it's, uh, and it's thus a reading of Israel's history, which you do in the light um, of what you know by faith, rather than that you can uh, argue with a Jewish person that their history has to be read that way. The image for this relationship between the Testaments, as, as the opening of Matthew portrays it, that I really like, is the one that I put as the heading there, that the Old Testament is Act 1 to the New Testament's Act 2. Uh, and that's uh, an image that I got from John Bright's book, The Authority of the Old Testament. The biblical story as a whole is like the two acts of a play. Um, And one of the implications of that, of course, is if you go to the play and you leave at the interval, you probably don't make make much sense of the play, actually. And uh, so uh, a Christian's conviction is that a Jew who doesn't look at at their history uh, in the light of Jesus isn't actually going to make sense of it. It's going to be something of an enigma. Um, a Scottish theologian called Thomas Torrance has made that point about the history of the Jewish people as a whole and and in particular about the Holocaust. Thomas Torrance says, the Jewish people is never really going to be able to come to terms with, understand, make sense of, find a way of thinking about the Holocaust until it looks at it in the light of Jesus. Um, Now, that's, again, a statement of faith. 
but likewise with the Old Testament story. It's Act 1 that, uh, that does actually find it, it's Act 2 in the Christ story. So if, you, if, if, as it were, you leave in the interval, then you don't understand the play. Much more of a problem, uh, though, for the circles in which we move is that people think that they can come in in the intermission, only watch Act 2, and then understand the play. Uh, which being interpreted means uh, you, you try to understand the New Testament without having it, the, the Old Testament as the first part of the story. It doesn't work. You can't do that uh, with a play. Uh, imagine in particular if it's one of those kind of mystery stories. Uh, okay, you're going to get the denouement. You're going to get the solution. But you didn't know what the problem was. Uh, and, and so the solution without the problem uh, is, is bound to be, uh, you're bound to misunderstand the point about the last part. The Old Testament is Act 1 to the New Testament is Act 2. Then in, in the second chunk of Matthew, this is the one where you read the passages from. Here's another way of seeing the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament declares the promise um, that Jesus fulfills, the promises that Jesus fulfills. Um, it says, you, you read six passages, didn't you? Was, what was the six? Was it? The one from chapter three. Okay, yeah, right. We'll just do these, uh, these five now. Now, um, this, the actual story of Jesus' birth then is told by Matthew in the end of chapter one and through chapter two. Um, in five uh, little, five short stories almost, five vignettes, five little portraits. Um, and in each of these little stories, the point is, cl- is clinched uh, by a reference uh, to something being fulfilled. Uh, now, in English, we have, the wor- we have a word fulfilled, which sounds like, well, it is a technical term. Uh, and, and that gets us into trouble with some of our understanding of, of what the notion of the fulfillment of prophecy is. That's partly why uh, some of you, uh, quite rightly as it were, uh, found Matthew's, um, the way that Matthew uses these passages, weird when, when we work with our understanding of what fulfillment means. But Greek doesn't have a special word to mean fulfill. What, what the New Testament does is most, most commonly, is use the ordinary word for to fill. You fill a bucket. You fill, you fill yourself up with food. You fill a prophecy. Uh, now, when you can talk about um, a, a prophecy being filled, it's a much more open and interesting um, kind of statement about a prophecy. It's got much more potential to it than when you talk about it, be, uh, talk about it being fulfilled. You can talk about, you can think of it as being filled out or filled up. Uh, it's not so surprising, maybe, in light of th- that, that the things that somebody find, finds in the prophecy, when they're looking at it in the light of the fulfillment, are um, more than what was actually there. The, the prophecy has been filled out by the way it's been fulfilled. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Greek verb... This pleiroto, um, pleiros is the word for full, for full um, and pleiroto is the word for to fill.
Five passages then in, in, each of, in, in each of which the point is clinched by a statement from Old Testament prophecy. And as some of you um, noticed, the, the degree of literalness with which Matthew um, takes each of these prophecies varies a lot. In some of the cases here, uh, Matthew's usage of the uh, Old Testament uh, seems to be very close to the kind of thing that the prophet would have had in mind. Um, in other cases, when you look at what Matthew has done with this passage, you say, excuse me? Um, the um, most literal uh, example, the one that, that, that you can imagine that the original prophet would have been most at home with, I think, is the second of these, the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, uh, where the wise men um, ask where the Messiah is to be born, and uh, they uh, are told, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you go back from that um, to Micah chapter 2, sorry, Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old from ancient days. Um, and if you read that Micah passage in its context, then it looks very much as if Micah is indeed talking about a ruler who is going to come in the future, um, who will be the means of God's rule being exercised in Israel. That's exactly what the Messiah is supposed to be. Um, and so there's no disjunction between the kind of thing that Matthew is doing with this prophecy and the kind of thing that Micah is saying. Um, you could say then that in Micah, the passage is actually a messianic prophecy. Though you might have noticed that, uh, that Micah doesn't use the word Messiah, the word anointed. And in fact, there's nowhere in the Old Testament where it talks about the, a future, this future redeemer figure, this new David figure, and describes him as the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed. The word Messiah, Mashiach, um, comes uh, a, a number of times uh, in the Old Testament, um, 20 or so, I think, uh, but um, put the I think down, if you write that down, because I, haven't re I don't remember exactly. Um, but the, when the word is used, it's, ne it's never used about somebody who's going to come in the future. It's always used about somebody who already exists, which is kind of not surprising, because it's talking about somebody who is the anointed the one who's already been anointed, the one who's been set apart, designated by God, um, and by that anointing is given special provision and protection. Uh, the word is sometimes applied to priests who are anointed, sometimes applied to kings who are anointed, um, and uh, on one occasion, I mean, it's, sometimes it's applied to um, uh, Israelite kings who are anointed, on one occasion it's applied to Cyrus the Persian king, who is kind of like the anointed king um, when we're in a context when Israel doesn't have its own anointed kings. 
Always then, the, this anointing word, this, this, this anointed word, is used about uh, somebody that Israel has got already. There are a number of passages, like the Micah passage, when the Old Testament does talk about uh, a future Davidic ruler whom God will put on the throne um, of Jeru- in Jerusalem and who will uh, fulfill all that the king was supposed to be. But uh, it never uses the word Messiah about that person. So you could say uh, that the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, but it never uses the word Messiah. When it uses the word Messiah, it's never talking about the Messiah. Right? It's typical. It's just so confusing, this Bible business, isn't it? Well, it's not my fault. I didn't invent it. I mean, yeah, I, that's just, um, I'm just sharing the confusion with you. It does talk. So, so you'll find people sometimes saying the Old Testament doesn't talk about the Messiah. And if they say that, then if they're right, they're talking at that technical level with regard to the use of the word. Um, it, it, the, it, in the sense of talking about a future Davidic ruler on the throne of Jerusalem, they'd be wrong. It's just that the Old Testament doesn't use the word Messiah that way. But it does assume for two sorts of reasons that one day God will send a Davidic ruler to sit on the throne. One reason reason is that that the Davidic rulers uh, were almost invariably people who failed to live up to what they were supposed to be. Um, And and so the prophets uh, know that one day God will send uh, the proper, uh, the person who will really fulfill Uh, the Davidic ideal, the real Messiah, we might put it. Uh, And and so the prophets start talking that way, as Micah does, when they've got a king on the throne. Now, I imagine Micah must have got into a spot of trouble for saying what he said in Micah chapter 5, right? Because just down the street is the anointed, is the Messiah. Uh, And here is Micah saying, well, one day, there's a ruler going to come forth. Excuse me, what about the ruler that we've got? Put two and two together, please, and you can see what's going on here. Um, and uh, Micah nearly lost his life um, for the prophecies that he gave. Not for that one in particular, uh, but certainly in, uh, in Jeremiah there's a reference to the fact uh, that Micah nearly lost his life as a prophet. Um, and so you can see politically why that might have come about. But the other thing that leads the um, prophets to talk about a future uh, deliverer, a future ruler is that once the exile has happened, then they have no uh, current anointed. Uh, Only then for uh, a few hundred years were their kings uh, on the throne in Jerusalem. For, if you like, the second half of the Old Testament period, they they had no kings. They were longer without kings than they were with kings. So when they were reading passages about the anointed one, in the Psalms, for instance, um, that stopped being about somebody they'd got and started being about somebody that they believed God would give, give, give them one day. So the word anointed came to apply to a future figure because there wasn't a present figure to whom it could apply. The Micah passage then um, is reasonably straightforward in the way in which it's portraying a future redeemer. Is it, a, is it a prophecy of Jesus? Um, one or two of you asked, well, okay, if some of these prophecies in Matthew are a bit odd, 
Are there any passages that count as predictions of Jesus? There's, there are no prophecies that say, well, one day God is going to send uh, his son into the world and his name will be Jesus. Um, there is a prophecy like that about King Josiah. Back in the beginning, near the beginning of 1 Kings, a prophet says, well, one day there's going to be a king called Josiah who's going to bring about some judgment in this country. The Old Testament could easily have included a prophecy that says, that said, one day there's going to be a king on the throne whose name will be Jesus. His mother will be Mary. And now you, you couldn't really argue then about, uh, against the notion, or at least it would be a much tighter um, claim, that the Old Testament is predicting Jesus. When you look at the, uh, at the passages like, uh, like the Micah one, uh, or other passages that are certainly talking about a future redeemer, they are never... They don't, they don't look like passages in which the prophet has been given a kind of anticipatory video um, of what Jesus' birth is going to be like or what Jesus', cruci- Jesus crucifixion is going to be like or something like that. You, you could um, understand there's nothing that drives you that makes it necessary to see the prophecy as, as fulfilled in Jesus. It's because you know that Jesus is the Messiah that, that you know that these passages are fulfilled in him, rather than that, rather than that you've done the exegesis of Micah or whatever, uh, and there's only one person that they could possibly, only one shape of person um, who could fulfill them. But it is a real um, prophecy about a coming ruler. The the next passage in Matthew chapter two. Uh, is the one that is one of the ones that's much more tricky. Uh, as a result of the wise men discovering where Jesus was to be born, they go to Bethlehem, um, and um, then an angel warns um, Joseph uh, that Herod is going to try and kill uh, Jesus and that he's to take Jesus off to Egypt. Uh, so Joseph does that. Uh, and they remain there until the death of Herod. And that's that little vignette in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Um, according to Matthew, happened. Uh, this happened to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, when you look back uh, for that passage in Hosea 11, uh, here's the uh, passage. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt. What Hosea is doing in Hosea 11, then, is uh, telling the story uh, of Israel from its beginnings in Egypt uh, the way that God brought them out from there and brought them up, treated them like a father, uh, taught them to walk, um, found that uh, they kicked him in the teeth. And God is then saying, okay, they can go back to Egypt. Now, Hosea 11 uh, is not a prophecy in the sense of a passage that talks about the future at all. It's a review of Israel's history. Um, it's not saying that one day there will be somebody whom God will call out of Egypt. It's saying several hundred years ago, God did call his son out of Egypt. So uh, when Matthew applies those uh, words to Jesus 
and says, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's doing something quite different um, uh, in our kind of categorizing from what Micah is doing. What's going on there? I think one of the problems uh, with our looking at this use of prophecy uh, is that in the back of our minds, or even in the front of our minds, is the assumption that the point about prophecy is to prove something about Jesus. You look for the links between what the prophets said uh, and what Jesus did. You see the way in which Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. um, And that proves he was the Messiah. Um, Two things about that. The first is that uh, that uh, isn't, isn't what the New Testament is doing. At least it isn't, usu- it isn't usually, maybe it's never what the New Testament is doing. Because uh, Matthew isn't writing to people who don't believe in Jesus, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. What Matthew is doing is writing to people who believe in Jesus in order to help them to understand what believing in Jesus is about. Who, Jesus, who this Jesus in whom they believe is. They all know that Jesus is the Messiah. The question is, what does it mean to be the Messiah? How can they fill out their understanding of Jesus? And, and what Matthew uh, does, here and elsewhere, and what Paul does, what the New Testament as a whole does, is use the scriptures, the Old Testament, in order to help them to understand uh, who Jesus is. The process of interpretation, thus, is not one that takes you from the Old Testament to the New Testament, in which you understand what the Old Testament has got to say, and then you say, you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. It's a process of interpretation that goes from the New Testament to the Old Testament, in which, uh, having you've come to know Jesus, uh, you know he's the Messiah, you know he's the Son of God, you know he died for you, but you need to spell that out for yourself and for other people. You need to come to understand what that means. And sometimes you need to understand weird things that happened. Um, and through these five vignettes in, at the end of chapter 1 and through chapter 2, one way or another, they, they are all weird things that happened in association with Jesus' birth, or puzzling things, things it's difficult to understand. So that what the prophets do for Matthew and for his readers um, is not prove something, uh, but help them to understand something. How did it come about that Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem, which is the capital for goodness sake, but was born in this little village down the road? That's weird. Oh, there's a passage of scripture that talks about that. Now we understand. How did it come to be that Jesus had to be taken off to Egypt? That was strange. That couldn't have been part of God's plan, could it? Oh, how strange. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt. God's son Israel was brought out of Egypt in the first place. It kind of fits with that, really. How strange, in a minute, how sad, um, that Jesus' birth causes the, the death of all those babies in Bethlehem. How can we understand that? Oh, remember what Jeremiah says about Rachel weeping. Remember how Rachel had wept. Um, There's Rachel's tomb near Bethlehem. So that when the Israelites trudged off to exile in 587, they trudged past Rachel's tomb. And Jeremiah imagines Rachel weeping 
uh, as her great, 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 and so on, grandchildren um, go past, off into exile, um, and, and promises that she'll be comforted because they're going to come back. Um, and what Matthew does is look at this tragedy uh, that associated with Jesus' birth and look at it in light of that thing that Jeremiah had said about Rachel uh, and the exiles. And that enables you to get your mind and your spirit around it a bit. It's not so odd after all. It's kind of part of a pattern. It's something that um, there are some scriptural passages that can help you understand. Uh, through, the, through these passages then and elsewhere, what Matthew is seeking to do with the Old Testament is help you to understand what Jesus is about, not, not, to, not seeking to prove uh, something to people who don't uh, believe it. Um, you can imagine that Jesus, who wasn't very keen on giving signs to people, um, wouldn't surely have been very keen um, on the notion of proving that he was the Messiah in that kind of way. That's, that's not, you, you, can't, you can't drive people into the kingdom by that kind of means. Uh, and so it's understanding that the Old Testament is giving to people. Uh, it's not proof that he's giving them. Uh, the, and it doesn't depend upon a correspondence between the original meaning of the passage and what it is that the people in Matthew's day learn from it. Now, um, you've prob- we've probably all had the experience of God speaking to us through, um, the inter- through an interpretation of a passage of scripture that's got nothing to do with what it meant. Um, and I will tell you two of mine. One is when I was at seminary, uh, and I went through a period of um, kind of spiritual depression. Uh, I, was, um, I didn't doubt that the Christian faith was true, um, but I wasn't sure that I belonged to the elect, the aforementioned elect. I didn't think I belonged. Um, and, and one day... Uh, in an Episcopal seminary, you have to go to chapel every day. How about that? Um, and so you go, and uh, you, amongst other things, uh, you read the scriptures. And one day, uh, that we happen to be reading Deuteronomy 17, because yesterday we read Deuteronomy 16, and tomorrow we'll read Deuteronomy 18. Um, and so it was no, there was no kind of, it was pure chance, humanly speaking, that that was the passage that got read in the chapel that day. And uh, included in it's the passage about... Um, uh, warnings about kingship, about kings, in which Deuteronomy uh, says, uh, talks about um, the king, uh, well, it includes the phrase with regard to Egypt, you, shall not, you will not go that way again. You will not go back to Egypt. And that came to me as a promise that God had laid hold of me and wasn't going to let go of me. And I came into the chapel spiritually depressed. I went out of chapel spiritually encouraged, joyful. But that's not, got nothing to do with what the passage means. What the passage means is, you mustn't go back to Egypt to go and um, uh, collect lots of horses in order to build up your kind of palace, uh, make, your, make your, your kingship more impressive. But what that came to me as was a promise from God that you won't go back again. Um, the other one is, um, when, when we were thinking about coming here, um, 12, just, it's, yeah, just about 12 years ago, um, this, yeah, this month, I guess, it would have been. Because I'd come here to be interviewed uh, at Fuller in April, um, and uh, in May they were going through their procedures to decide whether or not they were going to offer me a job. Um, and uh, again in chapel one day, uh, in the seminary that I taught, one of the students uh, had God say to her, tell, tell John, Judges 18.6, 
Um, so uh, she hadn't got a Bible, of course, being a student. Um, and so afterward, so so she wrote down. So she said that. No, oh, she um, she said to God, "I don't know what it says." So God said, "Never mind. Just tell John Judges eighteen six. So after she gave me a tiny scrap of paper, which I still got, that says Judges eighteen six. I hadn't got a Bible either. So we we went to look it up. Uh, and what it says in the NRSV is, "Go in peace." The mission you are on is under the eye of the Lord. Um, and, and that came to me uh, as a, a confirmation that in doing this risky thing of coming across the Atlantic to this place I'd only ever visited once, uh, bringing my uh, w- disabled wife here and not knowing whether it's all going to work out, that the Lord was in it. That's got absolutely nothing to do with what that statement means in its context in Judges. Um, but, but I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit um, had spoken to that girl, um, and that student, and that um, that was God's way of encouraging me in the same way as it happened years previously when I'd been a seminary student. Now, God does that. Um, and uh, the experience uh, of that kind is one that lots of people have. Um, and, and, that, and what Matthew is doing is something analogous. In, each, in, in Matthew's case, as in my case and your case, the, the starting point is not the original meaning, the literal meaning of the text. It's some contemporary situation upon which you need enlightenment, upon which you need God's guidance, which you, you need God to speak into a situation. Um, and, uh, and God is apparently quite happy to speak into a situation um, without worrying about what the words originally meant in their context in the Old Testament. Well, he's God. He can do what he likes, can't he? It's his book. Um, And um, that seems to me to be the model that you need for understanding what Matthew was doing. Now, uh, the thing, of course, one needs to see then is that if you start off with... There's a difference between uh, seeking to understand what judges um, or Deuteronomy or Hosea uh, were saying and learning from that... Um, which, which can be quite validly a kind of head thing, a thing that you do using your intellect. Um, there's a difference between that and realising that God has spoken to you in your situation through a particular passage uh, in, giving, in giving it a sense that has nothing to do with what it originally meant. They're just two different things. They're both things that God can do, both things the Holy Spirit can be involved in, but it's important to see the difference between them. When you're seeking to understand what judges meant in its original context, then uh, your problem may be making a link to now. Okay, I can see what judges... Uh, lots of people, we, sometimes in class we read judges, and people usually don't get much out of it. It's tough stuff is judges. Uh, the, the, there's a difficulty in moving from that to the now. So that's one sort of difficulty. If you're starting from the now, uh, and uh, reckon that God is speaking to you out of judges or whatever, then your problem is the, op- is, is the opposite to that. It's knowing whether God is really speaking to you. Because it, or is that just something you've invented? You have to test that kind of use of prophecy. Uh, in effect, what happened with Matthew is the, the church tested Matthew and decided, yeah, the Holy Spirit was involved in that. We reckon that that's, the Holy Spirit was um, active in enabling Matthew to see those things. When um, we think that God is speaking to us through a meaning of scripture that's nothing to do with its original meaning, then one way or another we have to test 
uh, what we think we found in the same way as if somebody uh, brings a word from the Lord, what they say is a word from the Lord to you, uh, or if you think God has simply said, out of thin air, something to you, uh, you always have to be aware, well, that might be God or it might be some other spirit. The advantage of the more historical approach to interpretation is that you don't have that snag. Um, you, you, can, you can work out what it, what it meant, what the Holy Spirit meant. Um, uh, but, but you may have more difficulty seeing what it's got to say to us now. So these two approaches to interpretation have opposite strengths and weaknesses. Um, it's, um, the fact that Matthew is, that, that the kind of thing that Matthew is doing um, is utilising these those Old Testament texts to speak to the question that he's bringing to the text, namely, what, who is Jesus? Um, and using the texts quite often with a different meaning from what they got is another reason why the proving Jesus from prophecy doesn't work. Uh, because Matthew isn't... In order for the, the usual understanding of proving Jesus as the Messiah could, to work then Matthew would have to be using, working with, the um, literal meaning of the text in order for the argument uh, to hold. Uh, so it's just as well that that isn't what he's doing, because if he was trying to, trying to do that, it wouldn't work. Um, the problem about this proving Jesus from prophecy uh, business um, is that it's not a usage of the Old Testament that arises out of the New Testament. It's something that came about in post-New Testament times, and in particular uh, when there'd been um, a division between uh, Jews and, uh, and um, Jewish Christians and Gentile, uh, between Jews who did believe in Jesus and, the, and Gentiles who believed in Jesus on one side, and Jews who didn't believe in Jesus on the other side. A split, if you like, between the church and the synagogue. Which in New Testament times hasn't happened, uh, or at least is only coming about, but which goes firm in post-New Testament times. And that's when then the attempt to prove to Jews that Jesus is the Messiah in that kind of rationalistic way uh, came to develop. But it isn't there present um, within the New Testament. And that's wise on the New Testament's part, because it doesn't actually work. Um, the other two, the other passages in Matthew two, um, the one at the end of chapter one, uh, Isaiah seven: Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Um, Isaiah, in the context in Isaiah seven, is offering the king of the day a sign, uh, in the sense that what he's saying is. Okay, now you're under terrible uh, political and military pressure, but I promise you uh, that God can rescue you. And the evidence that God has rescued you and that my word is true is that within the time it takes for a girl who is at the present a virgin uh, to uh, have her first baby, to get married and have her first baby, uh, in other words, within a year, um, this crisis will be over. Um, the, there's a controversy about the Isaiah passage about whether the word that Isaiah uses really means virgin or whether it just means a young girl without commenting on her um, sexual status but I don't think that matters because even if Isaiah is using the word for a virgin which I think he probably is it doesn't mean that he's not talking about a girl who will be a virgin when she has her baby I could say 
Prince Charles will one day rule uh, England if his mother ever stops. Um, but when he, uh, but when, when and if he does, he won't be Prince Charles, he'll be the king. So likewise to say a virgin will conceive doesn't mean she'll be a virgin when she conceives. But of course when um, Matthew looks back and sees that passage about a virgin conceiving, he goes, wow! Because the whole thing, the, 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 um, the words are now capable of being applied to Jesus with a difference, in a different sense from the one that Isaiah meant. Um, and the final passage is the mystery one about um, he will be called a Nazarene, um, which maybe refers to, um, picks up the Samson story, or maybe picks up um, Isaiah 53, but, uh, or, or maybe picks up the uh, description of the branch. Somebody asked, well, what, what language is this word, Nezer? Um, the answer is it's Hebrew. Um, and uh, the passage in Isaiah 11 that talks about Jesus, about the, the Messiah, in effect, though it doesn't use that word, of course, being the branch from the stump of Jesse, is saying that this um, king who will eventually come is the Netzer, and the spelling of the, that word Netzer is close uh, in its spelling to um, the name of the town, Nazareth, where Jesus did actually live. Um, so you could see that by virtue of living in Nazareth, Jesus is the branch man, is the branch. Um, I think I'll stop there for a minute and see whether there are... Um, well, I've put there for, for discussion. I think maybe as, as there's only the... What shall we do? Uh... Yeah, you talk to each other. Talk to each other about um, whether you think that approach to talking about the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy works, whether you think we'll lose anything by adopting it, uh, whether you've had God speak to you by that kind of um, use of scripture that I've talked about, um, how anything I've said in the last 20 minutes or so makes you think differently about the work that you did on those texts when you did the work. Um, talk to each other for a few minutes about that. Okay, anybody want to um, make any comments or asking anything about all that? Uh, going, going, gone. Okay, let me um, in five minutes deal with the other four points. That'll be impressive, won't it? Okay, four other things that Matthew is doing uh, at the bottom half of page 50. When uh, in quoting the Old Testament. First, the Old Testament provides the images and the ideas and the words for understanding Jesus. When along comes John, along comes John the Baptist and says things like, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Don't say to us, we've got Abraham as our ancestor, the axe is lying to the root of the trees, and all that. Most of the things that John the Baptist said there 
you wouldn't be able to understand unless you'd got um, some, uh, un- some understanding in common of, what, of the way that you thought about God and you and the way that God related to you and so on. So as I put it on the sheet there, the Old Testament is the theological dictionary that's presupposed by those first 12 verses about John the Baptist. And then when uh, Jesus gets baptised, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, And and here is God the Father speaking to God the Son at the moment when God the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And God doesn't make up some words, God quotes the Bible. That's weird. Uh, God uh, puts together three phrases out of the scriptures. This is my son from a psalm, uh, my beloved from Genesis 14. Uh, with whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42. Um, the Old Testament, uh, here is God illustrating how the Old Testament provides you with the images and the ideas and the words. Well, not only provides us, or Matthew or his hearers, <coughs> with uh, the means of understanding Jesus, but provides Jesus with them. If you want to understand yourself, says God to Jesus, have a look at these passages of Scripture. Then in Matthew 4, The Old Testament lays out the kind of life that God expects Israel um, to live. Um, The tempter takes Jesus into the wilderness and presents him with some suggestions of greater or lesser plausibility about things he might do. And each time Jesus answers with, it is written, it is written, it is written. Each time from Deuteronomy. Um, Jesus thereby passes the test that Israel failed. Deuteronomy shows you the kind of life that you ought to live as Israel. Jesus uh, lives it in a way that Israel didn't. In chapter 5, the Old Testament describes the kind of life with God that believers can live. Uh, The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on. Um, Most of the phrases in the Beatitudes come from the Psalms and Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. Um, Now, Jesus does something new with them, as I put on the sheet. He creates something wholly new from this raw material, uh, but that's where he gets the raw material from. So he assumes that in the Psalms, Nazar and so on, you can find the kind of life with God that believers uh, are invited um, to live. And then in the main part of of Matthew 5, which then follows, uh, the Old Testament provides the foundation for Jesus' moral teaching. Here's that fulfilment word again. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to fulfill. I've come not to abolish but to fill. To fill out. Um, And you can see how Jesus' teaching does fill out the teaching that the Old Testament has already given. Jesus confirms and embodies and broadens the kind of teaching you could find out of the Torah. Um, He builds on the foundations that the Torah gives you. He fills the boundaries. The, um, the Ten Commandments uh, establish, as I said, I think the other week, the boundaries of acceptable behavior. The um, kind of things that Jesus gives you uh, tell you how to fill in the land. He reasserts the possibilities that go back to creation, uh, inviting his people to come and live in the way that God created them to live. Uh, rather than merely with the kind of condescension that Moses often uh, made to them in the Torah in making allowance for their hardness of hearts.
There you are. Four minutes. Five po- four points. That's impressive, isn't it? Go away. Come back in 20 minutes. I'm going to go look at the library. I haven't been in the library yet. Okay, people. Uh, I'm going to talk about the way we try to uh, use scriptural material in connection with uh, issues that for us uh, are important issues, uh, but which have a different kind of profile or level of importance for us from the one they had within scripture. I'm going to talk about homosexuality and about abortion. Um, Both of them as topics that do or may uh, appear once or twice in scripture, uh, but don't have anywhere near the kind of um, uh, profile there that they have for us. So that it's rather different from trying to think about a topic like, say, anger or healing or something like that, where the topic is important for us, and you can see it occurs quite a lot in Scripture. It's obviously more complicated when you're trying to get a scriptural view on, it, on an issue that's the issues that are fraught for us, uh, but don't appear so often in Scripture. So, first, homosexuality. And on page 52, you will see a letter that um, was floating around the internet for a while. Dear Minister, I wonder whether you can help me with the interpretation of some of the Old Testament laws. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, I remind them of Leviticus 18.22, which clearly states it to be an abomination. I know that God's word is eternal and unchanging, but I need some advice from you about some other laws. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odour for the Lord. The problem is my neighbours. They claim the odour is not pleasing to them. How should I deal with this? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as it suggests in Exodus 21. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Uh, Instantly, when Anne and I and our kids were in Hebron, uh, once, uh, years and years ago, when our kids were little, uh, a man in the market did offer me six cows for Anne and the two boys. Um, and I refused, mainly obviously because I didn't know how I was going to get the cows on the airplane. Um, <laughs> on reflection, I maybe should have um, you know, attempted to negotiate a price that would have been useful to me. I know, that I'm not al- I know that I'm allowed no contact with a woman while she's in her period of menstrual uncleanliness. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offence. Leviticus 25 states that I may buy slaves from the nations that are around us. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify? That's actually, I think, a more profound remark than you might at first think. I don't know whether it's what was in the mind of the person who um, uh, devised this thing, but um, the position um, of... Mexicans and other Latinos, uh, undocumented people in particular, um, in California, is really quite analogous to the position of the people that we call slaves uh, in the Old Testament, uh, but who are the people who um, aren't slaves in the sense that they're owned by somebody, um, but are kind of uh, perforce doing the jobs that nobody else would do. And in theory could go home, but I mean, it's... it's, um, uh, in practice, 
uh, may, uh, are doing what they're doing because that's the only way of keeping body and soul together. I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Uh, the implication of the questions uh, in the line underneath there is, how would you argue, if you would, that the prohibition on homosexual acts applies now, but the others don't? Um, and it is quite common for people simply to quote uh, a text or two from Leviticus um, as if that solves it, and that um, pretend letter is showing how it doesn't. How one is going to need to have to one is going to need to look behind why things are um, forbidden in order to be able to see on what basis it might be uh, appropriate uh, for us now to take um, some of these statements, some of these instructions as still binding as binding in our lives, uh, but not be doing the same with all of them. Um, so let's have a look at the, some of the Old Testament and New Testament passages. Um, about same-sex um, relationships. First, Genesis 18 and 19, uh, where the men of Sodom want uh, Lot to surrender to guys who have come to stay with Lot, um, who, when we're reading the story, we probably, we have probably worked out um, are supernatural figures, not just ordinary human beings, um, but uh, the men of Sodom don't know that, and, and Lot doesn't. Um, at this point. Uh, they want Lot to surrender these two guys in order that they can uh, have sex with them. Um, uh, the story certainly assumes that what these guys want to do um, is morally disgusting. Uh, but that's not the reason, uh, there isn't a link made uh, simply between that and the reason why God is going to bring judgment on Sodom. God is going to bring judgment on Sodom because an outcry has reached God from Sodom. And the word that's used um, for an outcry is the word that's used in particular uh, where there has been, uh, where people have been um, killed, uh, where there's been violence, where there's been murder. Um, it's uh, the word that's used when Genesis 4 talks about the blood of Abel crying, from, crying out from the ground. Um, and it's the word that's used for the Israelites crying out in Egypt. Uh, and the word that's used when Isaiah talks about the cry that comes to God from uh, oppression in Jerusalem. Uh, and Ezekiel 16 specifically uh, talks about violence in Sodom um, as the thing that God abhors. Um, so it's, it, isn't, um, it doesn't look as if the, the reason why, there, or there isn't a, a basis for claiming that the reason why God is bringing judgment on Sodom is to do with homosexual acts there. Um, in any case, uh, the issue in Genesis 18 and 19 um, is of homosexual rape. Um, it's not of uh, any kind of same-sex relationship that anybody who wants to defend same-sex relationships wants to advocate for in our context. Uh, it's the same-sex um, equivalent as the passage to the passage in Judges 19 where uh, a woman gets gang, ra gang raped. Um, so Genesis 18 and 19, the story of Sodom, uh, is surely uh, quite irrelevant to any discussion uh, about the propriety or otherwise um, of same-sex relationships 
uh, in the context in which they're being discussed uh, in, for instance, among, in, our, um, in our context. The um, two references in Leviticus Uh, then uh, Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Uh, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, one comment about the reference to execution um, did I talk the other week about the way in which it's generally the case that the things that have capital punishment uh, attached to them uh, in the Torah, Israel never does actually um, implement execution with regard to them. Did I talk about that? Yeah, okay. Um, so it's the, the, the statement that they are to be put to death uh, is, more, is more something of the nature of a theological judgment theological and ethical judgment about what a terrible thing that it, this is than um, a law literally on the static book that uh, you are expected to implement. The ban on homosexual acts fits with a number of, Old Test of other Old Testament prohibitions on combining things that don't belong together, some which look very trivial. Um, they also uh, relate to uh, some other bans on uh, certain kinds of sexual acts. Leviticus 19.19 says, You shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you put on a garment made of two different materials. Um, if you're not sure whether you're in breach of that, whether your clothing mixes linen and wool... This is a serious problem because often the labels don't t give you the information about that. At least so according to the um, website of the Sha'atnez service of Seattle, um, which is um, a, uh, a Sha'atnez is the um, Hebrew word for mixture. Uh, and you can send your clothes to the Shatness service of Seattle and they will check your clothes for you to make sure that you're not in breach of Leviticus 19.19. Uh, and when, in their discussion of why God should be concerned about that, what they argue is that this is a way of fitting in with the way that God created the world, rather than trying to improve it. Um, and one can see how uh, the ban on homosexual acts uh, would fit with the conviction that um, we ought to fit in with the way the, the, uh, the world is made and the phys anatomical, physiological difference between men and women suggests um, a kind, suggests heterosexual acts rather than homosexual acts. But then um, Acts 10 changes uh, the rules, uh, some, some of these aspects of the rules about fitting in with creation. Because uh, in, according to the Old Testament law, there were various things that you couldn't, couldn't do that were to do with... Um, the, the nature of created things with whether different animals fitted into categories uh, and so there were, there were various, rule, various animals, various creatures that the Torah uh, forbade Jews to eat 
It was a way of showing that their lives were in conformity with some categories that emerged from creation. Um, as a good Jew, Peter thinks he's going to... Ca- he's, he, as a Christian, it doesn't mean that he stops uh, living by what the Torah has got to say. Um, and he's astonished and horrified when he has a vision um, and, and God tells him uh, to go and eat the seafood that he's never eaten, that is against uh, the, uh, the rules of the Torah. But God's abandoning the rules whereby the Jewish people was dis- were distinct from other peoples, paradoxically, is designed to fulfill the same purpose as God's giving those rules in the first place. God gave the Jews some rules to keep them separate. Now God's turning that on its head and saying, I don't want you to keep those rules because I want you to be mixed up um, with the world, not separate from the world. There's a consistency about God's acting. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God is concerned for reaching the world. But there can be changes about the way that God goes about achieving his purpose. Uh, And so from um, Pentecost onwards, God is achieving his purpose uh, of uh, having the Jewish people, particularly the people who believe in Jesus, reaching out to the world uh, by not being different from them and being able to eat with them and being able to mingle instead of being different from them, which has been the principle that God was operating um, through the Mosaic period. The question is, which, uh, how many of the rules in the Torah um, are, uh, cease, to be, cease to be of significance um, in light of that change in God's operating? Uh, is, uh, is the ban on homosexual acts uh, one of the cleanness type rules which are abandoned in Christ? Or has it got some other kind of significance? And when we're looking at laws the other week, um, I suggested how you need to look behind the law to see how it, where it fits on that grid that I um, suggested. Uh, what, what kind of concerns are embodied in some laws? As I put on the, sh- the bottom of page 52, you need a broader biblical theological view of, for instance, cleanness and stain or taboo or impurity, and a broader biblical theological view of food, and a broader biblical theological view of sexuality. Um, if you're going to be able to see uh, whether those rules, for instance, about homosexual practice, were part of the um, Torah that no longer obligates anybody, or whether they've got something to say um, that um, still expresses God's concerns for us. Other parts of the Old Testament that people have, uh, over the page, page 53, um, that people have referred to in connection with homosexual practice, Uh, People have suggested that the relationship between David and Jonathan was homosexual and that the relationship between Ruth and Naomi was homosexual. Um, We can't prove that these people didn't have a homosexual relationship, but there's no indication that they did. Um, uh, One of the things I think that's illustrating links with the way uh, I was talking before the break, really. Um, If you already know, in quotes, that same-sex relationships are good and that God approves of them, then um, you might well read the David and Jonathan story or, or the Ruth and Naomi story um, to um, give you some more insight on that. I'll give you another example of that. But the movement of interpretation is from what you think you know uh, back to the text rather than from the text uh, kind of forwards. Um, uh, w- one, um, 
last passage that's been um, appealed to in this connection um, is uh, in Isaiah chapter 56, where the prophet says, Don't let the foreigner who has joined to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, a foreigner isn't to say, I can't belong to Israel. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. That is, don't let somebody who is, um, geneti- uh, who, whose genitals are malformed, uh, maybe accidentally, or maybe because they've been castra- castrated, um, say that because they can't uh, procreate, I'm just a dry tree, I can't contribute to Israel in that sense. Um, I therefore can't belong. The foreigner isn't to say they can't belong, and a eunuch isn't to say they can't belong. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the thing that please me and hold fast to my covenant, do the things that really count as far as God's concerned in this context, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And that positive attitude to people who um, uh, are, um, whose genitals are malformed contrasts with some things that the Torah says um, about suddenly people who have um, uh, malformed themselves. And likewise, for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Um, again, the Torah uh, sometimes says that certain sorts of people, Egyptians, Edomites, Ammonites, can't belong to the people of God. Here is Isaiah 56 saying, they can. So, so maybe God did once say uh, homosexuals, um, homosexual practice was excluded. You couldn't be uh, homosexual and be ordained or uh, be, marry somebody of the same sex. But maybe God's changing Maybe this is a prophetic word in our day, like the prophetic word in Isaiah 56. Maybe it's like Jesus saying, you have heard it said of old time, uh, but I say to you. Maybe. The trouble is, again, it's kind of working backwards. How are you going to test uh, what's said about that? Um, In the New Testament, two key passages in 1 Corinthians and Romans. And in the, what I've got to say about the New Testament, much of it uh, derives from um, Richard Hayes' book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, which I've quoted near the bottom of that uh, page. Do not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The passage talks about, in Greek, the malakoi and the arseno koitai, um, which seem to mean, uh, on the, in, respectively, the passive partner in homosexual activity and the person who's lying with um, another man. And Paul uses the language that's used in those two passages in Leviticus, the the 
Paul's um, Greek words are the same as the Greek words that are used in the Greek translation um, of the uh, passages in Leviticus. So it looks as if Paul is reckoning that the passages in Leviticus still apply. Similarly, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, another list of people who um, are bad guys, the godless and sinful, the, un- the unholy and profane, those who kill their father or mother for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, whatever, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Um, then uh, the, a passage in Romans that includes the only um, scriptural reference to lesbian acts. In light of people uh, of humanity turning its back um, on the wisdom that God gave us, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanging natural inter- exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Uh, And a comment of Richard Hayes' on that, which I found extremely suggestive, that whereas in uh, Christian discussion it's often been uh, reckoned that homosexual practice uh, is something which calls down God's wrath upon you, Hayes' point about that is that the existence of homosexual practice in the world is a result of God's wrath being in the world, not a cause of God's wrath being in the world. And it's because we, humanity in general, uh, turned our backs on God that one of the um, ways in which God brought about judgment on the world is in the existence of um, sexual impropriety of this kind. Homosexual acts uh, are not acts that cause God's wrath, but they are the results of God's wrath. Um, And my comment is that surely our culture illustrates that. We're in such a terrible mess, not just with regard to homosexual acts, but with sex in general, um, as a result of having turned our our backs on God, surely. Um, Hayes' point, I think, or it might be mine, I'm not sure, um, is that homosexuals are paying the price for the rest of us. That is, if... um, uh, And so, for that matter, you could say, are other people who um, are involved in sexual immorality, kind of paradoxically... Uh, we're, we're all sinners, uh, and they are people who are paying a price in a particular way. Paul's argument is that these kind of acts are against nature. Homosexual acts are against the natural order. Now, there's, um, and I, I take it that at least part of what Paul means is that it's, um, it's natural, it's anatomically kind of natural, uh, for men uh, to uh, have sex with women, uh, and not for men to have sex with men, and women to have sex with women. They, they, the acts are against the natural order. There's a big um, unresolved scientific debate uh, about whether actually homosexual acts are natural for a homosexual. Um, if that debate ever gets resolved and somebody finds, finds the homosexual gene, um, I don't think that will make any difference to uh, Paul's theological and moral point. 
I would like to have sex with lots of women. Don't queue up afterwards. Um, or don't run afterwards either, because I'm uh, resisting the temptation. Uh, promiscuity is natural for me. Is promiscuity natural for you? They're not going to say. But I'm not the only guy um, of whom that's true. Um, but the fact that it is natural for me to want to have sex with lots of people doesn't mean, therefore, it's right. doesn't mean, therefore, I can do it. Um, uh, the fact that something is... N- uh, uh, and that would, uh, would link with, I think, with Paul's description uh, in Romans uh, 1 about the way in which humanity has got perverted. The fact that something is natural um, doesn't, doesn't mean that it's right. The call of the church is to live by creation. If sex was designed for expression within a monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual relationship in order to fill the world and to image God in the world, as Genesis 1 and Ephesians 5 suggest, then that suggests that homosexual practice falls short of God's vision, along with polygamy and prostitution and divorce and remarriage and masturbation and living together without marriage and living together before marriage, and the deliberate avoidance of contraception. Uh, sorry, the deliberate avoidance of conception. And then I put a question mark at the end of the paragraph because I must have lost confidence or, or something in the, uh, having put that long list of things. The way of looking at the issue um, that I find illuminating is the one that Jesus suggests when he discusses divorce and remarriage. He doesn't discuss uh, those other issues, but he does discuss that one. Um, in which he describes um, God as making allowance for human hardness of heart uh, with regard to divorce, uh, but calls his followers back to God's creation vision. Um, And the various ways in which, in our culture and in other cultures, we um, get in a mess sexually involve uh, falling short of God's vision Uh, in one respect or another, well, maybe more than one, but in one respect or another. We tend to have different attitudes to different ones of those, and I'm not sure there's a good theological reason for that, and that's a question that I kind of wrestle with. Uh, We tend to assume that it's very obvious that polygamy is really bad. Okay, it falls short of God's vision for monogamous, lifelong heterosexual relationships. At one point. We are much more easygoing now, um, the Christian church is, than 50 years ago, about divorce and remarriage. Uh, we, we all, none of us thinks divorce and remarriage is a good thing, but every church has got lots and lots of divorced and remarried people in it. Whereas over the, last, over the same period of time, we've got much tougher in our attitude to same-sex relationships in lots of uh, churches, lots of contexts anyway. Um, And I don't think that there is a theological moral basis for differences in attitudes to, um, for instance, polygamy and remarriage uh, and um, same-sex marriage. They all fall short of God's vision. And it's not theological and moral uh, reasons that make us take different attitudes to different ones of those. It's kind of cultural reasons, or it's to do with homophobia, or it's or it's because we have a lot of divorced people in the church and remarried people in the church and we don't want to um, offend them. Uh, and a thing that I have been um, kind of thinking about, uh, toying around with in my, in my mind, 
is whether it might be possible. I, I, somebody told me the other week that in Louisiana and some other states, there are two forms of marriage, um, which are rather unfortunately described as traditional marriage and covenant marriage. I thought traditional marriage was covenant marriage. <laughs> Um, but it's uh, ceased to become covenant marriage because you can get out of it at the top of the hat. Um, and so uh, in the states that have got this arrangement, uh, you can opt for uh, covenant marriage whereby you forego uh, the uh, possibility of getting instant no-fault divorce. Now, I don't think that particular difference between covenant marriage and traditional marriage I don't find particularly uh, uh, helpful or illuminating. But the idea that we might... Uh, have various kinds of marriage would seem to me to be worth thinking about uh, in light of the kind of the thing that Jesus says about the hardness of hearts. And I wonder whether we can have, I haven't got names for them, but marriage that um, is working within the vision uh, of Genesis 1 and 2, lifelong heterosexual monogamous uh, marriage, and marriage that falls short of those uh, at one point or another which would embrace uh, remarriage after divorce um, and same-sex marriage um, and polygamy. Wherefore, you have no excuse whoever you are, says Paul, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Um, So uh, we must be careful uh, about the way in which we do pass judgment upon other people whose temptation with regard to instance uh, who who for instance are drawn to people of the same sex in a way that I'm not Um, uh, it would be uh, wicked of me to pass judgment on them because that's the way in which they are drawn uh, when I don't have that drawing the biblical material then seems to me to be pointing that put a point in that kind of direction Um, the the witness of tradition the other considerations in terms of authority the other um, criteria for authority, as well as scripture, uh, include the church and its tradition and the nature of, um, of human experience. Uh, the church's tradition over the centuries has, has been pretty consistently uh, non, not approving of same-sex marriage. Um, the, the witness of the experience of people who are attracted to members of the same sex uh, clearly is, giving you, is put, taking you in a different kind of direction and raising the question of how you evaluate uh, that kind of testimony over against what seems to be uh, the testimony of Scripture and a tradition. Hayes, whose line I more or less kind of agree with, nevertheless comments, on one hand, no issue divides the church more sharply, and yet the Bible hardly ever discusses homosexual behaviour. Contrast the stress on the wealthy sharing with the poor, uh, which we're not very brilliant at, And then finally, Lynn Lavner, who is, I think, a Jewish lesbian um, talk show host or something like that. Um, The Bible contains six admonishments to homosexuals and 362 admonishments to heterosexuals. That doesn't mean God doesn't love heterosexuals. It's just that they need more supervision. Um, Do you want to talk to each other for five minutes about that? No, we don't. Yes, you do. Go on, talk to each other for five minutes about that. Okay. Anybody want to make any comments on that or ask anything? Hello? If we were to look at this as God's wrath on humanity, yep. um, how then are we supposed to respond 
to to the to homosexuals that are engaging in an act that is God's wrath upon them as Christians. Um, it would seem that if it, if it is God's wrath on them, no, it's not God's wrath on them. It's God's wrath on, God's wrath on all of us. Humanity as yeah. a result of our all yeah. humanity's sin. Yeah. Shouldn't we as Christians then try to alleviate that or or function in some way mm, to true. limit God's wrath sure. on these people? Well, on on. On his people, did you say? No, I said this, but his is better, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's wrath, God's wrath on humanity as a whole. Sure, sure yeah. How would we do that? I don't know. You I mean, I, um, Limit homosexual acts because we, that'll therefore limit God's wrath. If, engage, if engaging mm, in a homosexual yeah. act mm. is God's wrath, if you were to limit that, mm. would that be alleviation of God's wrath on humanity? If you, from that perspective, I don't, I don't th- mm. it would only be dealing with the symptoms, uh, I think, not with actually the the distortion, wouldn't it? Um, uh, it feels to me it's a bit like um, dealing with the the, the other. What are the, in a way the other? Um, Expressions of God's wrath, the things that came about as a result of the being human sin in the world, like uh, the kind of things that Genesis 3 talks about, where it talks about the, the broken relationship between um, husbands and wives, or the distorted relationship between husbands and wives, um, and between um, uh, mothers and their children, and so on. Uh, and so, um, we'd. we'd uh, yeah, we'd be seeking to work against, to to alleviate that, but simply kind of banning the thing uh, doesn't. There must be some other. Some, that that's that's surely too much dealing with the. It'd be a bit like saying don't have children because then there can't be bad relations between mothers and children. Um, so I'm not sure that's the way I'd go, um, but I think seeking to make it possible for. Um, not, not, not so much. I mean, the way that Paul talks about it, it it's much more um, the kind of the kind of same-sex relationships like the like the promiscuity that uh, he's got in mind. The the guy next door to in the in the condo next to us there was until recently a um, <coughs> a gay couple uh, in their fifties, I should think. Um, one of them got Parkinson's. And so the other one used to come and talk to me about what it was like coping with um, your partner uh, having an, Ill, an illness uh, like that. Um, and what they've now done, he decided that he, he, they, he needed to be able to take early retirement in order to be able to look after his partner. Uh, and so that's why they've moved away. Um, now, uh, there's something... That, that's a different sort of same-sex relationship from the, from the kind of thing that Paul's talking about in Romans, I think. It still isn't an ideal, but to make it possible for somebody like th- that to be able to uh, live in a committed way to each other, even though that's, that's not an ideal, feels to me more like a limiting of the effect of God's wrath than simply saying they mustn't have um, a relationship at all. That's, I, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. First, I just want to clarify, so in your personal position, when you still consider homosexuality sin, 
Um, I, I'm not sure that um, that I. Sorry, the reason I was grinning is that when I was being interviewed for this job, Don Hagner, who's now retired, kept pressing me about to say homosexuality was a sin. Uh, and um, I, I said, it falls short of the glory of God. He said, is it a sin? And I, I didn't want to, and, and I think what, designating things, I don't, I, don't, I don't get a great, I don't know why I need to, to say, it's some kind of stereotyping. There's something, um, there's something that makes me feel uneasy about labelling that in that way. To say that it falls short of the glory of God is to say it's a sin, but it's, to, it's, a, it's in a kind, some kind of less stereotyping or something way. So I want to say it falls short of the glory of God. Will that do? Well, that's all you're going to get. <laughs> For my second question, uh, in the new heaven and new earth, then, if we say that by then relationships will be, will not will be at the standard of God, does that mean that there won't be homosexual relationships? Well, there won't be heterosexual relationships either. In heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, Jesus says. It's the passage in the Bible that we all object most to, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, maybe, yeah, I don't know. We have a list of passages that we most object to. Yeah, so, so I think, uh, yeah, um, there the won't, the, the, apparently there won't be sexual relationships. So, a fortiori, there won't be homosexual relationships. <laughs> Okay, let's um, go on to abortion. Page 54. Uh, as it says at the top of that page, whereas the Bible speaks about homosexuality and the question is whether we like it, that's a bit of an exaggeration because there's some interpretation involved. But um, yeah, well, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, it's, it's whether we like it in the sense that I think... Uh, in in um, in our culture, it's more and more uh, tending to be assumed that um, it's a matter of choice. Um, it's free choice whether whether you whether you um, that the the two the heterosexual marriage and same sex marriage are ethically morally um, the same. It's a matter of choice which you which you're inclined to, which is natural for you. Um, I, I don't think that, the, that you can get out, that out of the Bible um, though as I've implied wh where you kind of draw lines with regard to same sex uh, relationships uh, is a trickier one but with regard to the assumption that these are both kind of equal um, the question is whether we like what the Bible's got to say asking the question about how asking the questions about abortion uh, is different because I don't think the Bible speaks about abortion at all. So it's even more difficult to deal with the questions on a proof text basis. Now, uh, that's what we as evangelicals always want to do. If there's, if there's a text, you can say, well, I believe it, I'll do it, I can put it on my bumper sticker, um, and uh, the problems then uh, is dealt with. You, you can't actually deal with homosexual uh, homosexuality that way uh, even less can you deal with uh, abortion that way though um, a lot of people would like to try 
um, you shall not, well, what the, you shall not murder, says the commandment in the NRSV translation. You shall not kill, the, King's Bi- the King James Bible uh, said. The commandments don't use the regular word for to kill. Um, they use a word that means something more like slay. Um, they, you, the, the, you can, there can be a killing, which is right. Um, the, the slaying is by definition a form of killing that's wrong. Um, so probably you shall not murder is closer to an appropriate translation than, than you shall not kill. Uh, obviously the Israelites did go around fighting battles um, and killing people um, and they apparently didn't assume that that was a breach of the commandments. Um, they weren't involved in illegal um, slaughter, slaying. And what the commandment is talking about is, um, is illegal slaying. It, the commandment gets quoted with regard to uh, abortion, but quoting it with regard to abortion uh, begs a, a series of questions about what it is that you're doing when you're aborting somebody, and of course in what sense you are slaying a person uh, when, uh, you, if you're aborting somebody. I was amazed a couple of years ago um, when a guy from the New York Times called me to, 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 to consult me about how I interpreted Exodus chapter 1 verses 22 to 25. Because um, I didn't know that this is a hot text in discussing abortion, which shows how innocent and ignorant I am. Uh, you all knew that this is a hot text. No. No, oh, good. I don't feel so bad then. Uh, when people, this is the NRSV, people, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there's a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the, husband, what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Um, the, uh, the NRSV assumes uh, that the passage is talking about a miscarriage then, um, and the question it's dealing with is whether the woman herself is hurt. Um, or, but, but the alternative, more likely understanding, I think, is that what happens is that she's caused to give birth prematurely, uh, and uh, the question is whether the baby uh, is hurt in, by, this, uh, by what happens. In the first case, if the woman miscarries then the implication of the passage is that the mother is a person in a fuller sense than her, than her unborn baby. But surely uh, it's more likely, that, but the, the passage is more likely talking about um, premature birth. Uh, and uh, one of the arguments for that is that the um, passage doesn't talk about, doesn't use the word for an embryo or a fetus, uh, but uses the word for um, children. Um, it doesn't use the word for miscarry. There is such a word. It simply talks about the child coming out. So it looks as if it, what it's talking about an argument, a, a, uh, a fight that results in the woman um, giving birth um, prematurely. Uh, and so it hasn't got anything to do with the questions about abortion. 
uh, about the about the relative evaluation uh, of mother and child, which is the um, the way in which has been used in in these arguments. Um, Psalm one three nine gets quoted in this connection um, because there the psalmist says. It was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. Here's a description of what, got, what was going on um, when God was forming a baby in the womb. Um, if God is so involved in the forming of a baby, um, can it be the case, that, could it possibly be the case that abortion is right? The problem is, as I put on the sheet, the psalm is a piece of poetry. It's not a part of a law code. Um, it's not a knockdown proof text to demonstrate that abortion is wrong. But the wonder it expresses at the growth of a fetus and that Yahweh's involvement in, in this process is grounds for reckoning that a decision to cause a woman to miscarry is not merely one involving a decision about what, what happens to her body. It involves terminating a project that Yahweh is involved in. And you'd need a pretty good reason to do that. Uh, in, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, um, God talks about the nature... Um, of God's involvement with Jeremiah before he was born. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Um, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Um, and there is a passage you can compare with that in uh, Luke's account of the background to Jesus' birth. Uh, when uh, Mary goes to see Elizabeth. Um, and when um, uh, Mary arrives, Elizabeth says, As soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my, in my womb leapt for joy. Um, here again, then, are, here again are two passages that presuppose an involvement of God's and a kind of involvement of the Holy Spirit, if you like, with the baby before it's born, which fits uh, with that description of God's involvement with the, um, with the psalmist in Psalm 139. There are certainly indications here, then, uh, of um, an awareness of, of wonder at what's going on in the womb, an awareness of God's involvement with it, um, and, as I say, uh, an assumption that you're not just talking about something which is um, an aspect of, the, of something going on inside a woman's body that's peculiar to her. There's, some, there's something bigger going on there, apart from simply something that's going on to her body. But, but they, aren't, they aren't nothing like knockdown arguments with regard to um, particular questions about uh, whether somebody should have an abortion. You couldn't reckon that they rule out anybody having, uh, somebody ever having an abortion, though you could rule out the attitude that simply says it's totally to do with the woman's body. 
Hayes again discussing these issues. Uh, he talks about the general attitude to, I mean, against the background of, so there aren't any knock, knockdown texts. So again, as with homosexuality, we're driven back to, how do we think biblically, biblically theologically uh, about this issue? Um, and he points to the general attitude to children and to childlessness in Scripture um, and the fact that pregnancy is never a problem in the sense that um, no, nobody is ever sad uh, that they got pregnant. Uh, abortion, sorry, this next, the next line looks as if it's contradictory, but I don't think it is. Abortion is unthinkable. It is thinkable in New Testament times. Um, uh, what, I, what I mean by that is that um, there are lots of references in New Testament times uh, and in, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern Old Testament times to people having an abortion or seeking to have an abortion. So paradoxically, the, the fact that it is actually unthinkable within Scripture, the fact that it isn't discussed there, uh, rather suggests that it's taken for granted that this isn't something you could ever think about. It's not that... It, it's not that Nobody would understand what you meant if you talked about abortion. Uh, it's that, okay, we know that people do that, but we don't even have to think, we don't even have to talk about its inappropriateness. God gives life. It's not our job to decide when God does that or when life is to cease. Um, if, uh, and this is, this is again Hayes, though it sounds like Hawass to me, it's the kind of thing Hawass would say. The church cares for the needy. And that would include the regrettably pregnant or the parent of a disabled child. Uh, our job then when somebody uh, is um, pregnant and doesn't want to have the baby or when their baby uh, would, would be disabled is to offer care uh, for them and for the child uh, rather than to facilitate their disposing of the child. What about the rights of the mother? Well, the, the key issue lies here. It's the thinking in terms of rights. Um, it's not a thinking in Scripture in terms of the sacredness of life, uh, but of who has sovereignty over life. Um, of course there are marginal situations. Um, Anne, Anne's um, MS was diagnosed in spring 66, um, and she had another attack of it in spring 67, which was a few months before we got married. Uh, and then she got pregnant uh, straight after we got married, which wasn't the idea. Um, there was an article in the British Medical Journal the week after it was confirmed that she was pregnant, saying that it turned out that the pill that she was on wasn't as safe uh, as some other pills. And we were in a position to give our own testimony to this fact. Um, and because she'd only had an attack of the MS uh, a matter of months before she became pregnant, her neurologist wanted her to have an abortion. Um, this was just after the passing of the uh, Abortion Act in, in Britain in 1967. Um, and uh, we, um, the, the, because um, pregnancy puts a huge pressure uh, on the body, uh, and her neurologist... Um, was afraid uh, that, uh, that, that the pregnancy would, would trigger uh, more attacks of the MS. Um, now, this wasn't exactly the mother's life being endangered, but it was certainly the mother's life um, being 
um, well, the mother's health being imperiled. Um, we asked to see another neurologist. We went to see another neurologist, and um, he said, well, he could tell from reading the notes that she really had had attacks of MS, but he couldn't find any trace of the results of the MS in her body, uh, which was good enough for us, and um, she, we, she proceeded with the pregnancy. Um, and um, he'll be 41 this year. <laughs> and he's got children of his own. <laughs> and, um, and he should have been flushed down the toilet. Uh, now, I think, I think we, we could have... We, we thought seriously um, about accepting the, her own neurologist's advice. Um, and I wouldn't criti- criticise somebody who did have an abortion in their circumstances. Um, but that's a different way of... Uh, th- there are marginal questions. Um, as, as with the, uh, a pregnancy that results from, that results from rape, uh, and maybe if the baby seems likely to be disabled, there are marginal questions that might make you think about whether uh, abortion is the right thing. Um, but that framework for looking at the question is, is again very different from the one that runs in the culture, um, which thinks in terms uh, of, uh, which antithesizes the sanctity of life, right to life kind of question with the woman's right to decide sort of questions. Um, and, and generally doesn't use a framework which actually doesn't work with a framework that, that you could find um, in terms of a biblical theological framework of what it means to um, have children, what children mean, um, what pregnancy means, what love means, what caring for one another uh, in the context of the body of Christ means. So I'll just put it at the bottom of the page there. Uh, those are marginal situations which are tricky, but that's not where the energy of the debate in our culture lies. Um, and one thing that we need to do for ourselves is to encourage ourselves to have a framework of thinking which reflects Scripture's way of framework for thinking about rights and children um, and love uh, and so on. And, and maybe to, to, to encourage the world to think about that framework of thinking. Not because the Bible says, but in the conviction that it might commend itself uh, to them. Um talk to one another for a few minutes about that if you'd like to and then we'll try and I'll try and tie things up at the end in a moment see what talk to one another about what you think about those that the abortion question if not I warn you I shall deal with Neil's question at least I will do if he reminds me what it is the one about was it about salvation before Christ or something sorry for Gentiles specifically for Gentiles Um, I presume that they'd be in the same position, wouldn't they, as people who, um, in, in, in the world now, who uh, live in an area where the gospel hasn't penetrated. Okay, then what's the answer to that? <laughs> um, and I presume the answer to that is, I mean, the, the answer, firstly, the ans- what isn't the answer to that? which is they are not judged in accordance with the light that they've got, whether they've lived up to it. Uh, Because Romans 1 to 3 excludes that. 
um, uh, that, that nobody lives up to the light that they've got. Uh, and that the only basis upon which anybody uh, is, um, is going to be uh, is okay with God uh, is, is not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of, of whether they've trusted in God. Um, now the, uh, and that's where uh, the Jews who live before Christ um, are in an analogous position. That is, the, the only way of being saved is on a basis of trust in God. It's not on a basis of what you do. Um, and the question with Jews, who, people who have heard the gospel, or with people who lived before Christ, or with people who, um, with Gentiles who haven't heard the gospel before Christ or after Christ, is what kind of trust relationship is there between them and God? Uh, that, that's how I would see it. Um, and if they, if they have put their trust in God, um, then, then Jesus dying for the world applies, applies to them, even, that the, even though they don't know um, that the one that Jesus, that Jesus has died for them, and that's what makes that possible. That's how I would see it. Um, but the, the importance... Um, so at least in theory, it's possible for somebody who's not heard the name of Christ to have trusted in God um, and to uh, be right with God and to have eternal life. But presumably, it's more likely if they've heard the gospel. So it's still important to go and uh, tell them about Christ, di- Christ dying for them because um, there ought to be a fair chance that that will um, draw them into making their act of trust in God. One would have thought. Um, but anyway, that, but that's, that's the, that might be the part of the basis for the gospel imperative to share uh, the news of Christ with people. Okay, this week you're going to write a paper, next Monday you're going to barbecue because you've already turned in the paper, and then you're going to do whatever is the work, oh, there's something to do for, then it's the last, oh, it's only one, one week, isn't that, oh, wow, isn't that um, strange? And, um, I don't know, can't remember what, yes, there must be something we're going to do. Oh, you do some, uh, that's right, yes, I see what you do. It tells you on page 49 what you do for two weeks today. Right, goodbye.